Well, our Cactus Campus and our venue are joining us right now live, and we're all going to study God's Word together over this incredibly important topic that we've hopefully set you up for well today and for Cactus and Venue on what do we do in the midst of some of life's more difficult times when the darkness seems to creep in, whether circumstantially or otherwise, what do we do and how do we find God? in the midst of those times. And so Job, the book of Job has been guiding us over last week and this week, and uh, let's continue to see what God says to us. So would you do me a favor? Let's bow and pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we do thank you for uh, the gift of grace that you've given us, and it's the grace that allows us to freely know you and find you and have faith and trust in you, and Lord, a choice that we all have each moment of each day in this world. And so I pray, God, that as that gift of grace has been given upon us, I pray that we would now choose to look to you, choose to be open to your word and your truth and what you might have to say about our lives. God, it's no secret that there are people here today and at Venue and Cactus that um, come from all different places. Some of us come in here elated and joyful, everything's going great, and others of us come in here today, Lord, bruised and beat up. And we're looking for a word from you. So, Lord, just get us all on the same page as to who you are and where you are in the midst of any circumstance in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the deal. I believe firmly that how you and I approach God, what we believe about him, what we believe about how he functions in this world matters greatly when it comes to our experience of him. And though some of you have been believers for a long time, we're saying, well, duh, of course that is true. The reality is, is that many people don't see the spiritual life or a walk with God that way. Many people tend in our world today, tend to say, well, as long as you believe in God, as long as you think that there's a good guy up there or something like that, then anything else from there goes and it really doesn't matter what you believe. Let's just all be liberal believers in God. But the reality is, is that the Bible firmly says that what we believe about God specifically will determine our relationship with him. And what I find interesting is, is it's not just the big things that we believe about God, like whether he exists or not, or whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not, or whether the Bible's the word of God or not, though those are all very important issues. No, the Bible even says that in the more specific areas of our belief system, the specific areas of what we think and feel about God also matter greatly when it comes to our experience of Him. So things like how He responds to our expectations, what He has promised and not promised, and what we believe about those promises, and what He values in this world and what He doesn't value. Those are all important issues that the Bible addresses that you and I need to dial into on a regular basis and cement whether we believe those things or not when it comes to our experience of Him. And though I know I'm talking a little cryptically, and I'm going to drill down in just a moment as to what I'm specifically getting at with all this, let me give you a human example of this so that you can see what I mean. As many of you know, I just got back a couple of weeks ago from being gone the whole month of July with my wife, Kim. We took a month off. We've been married for 25 years now. We celebrated our 25th anniversary in June, and we spent the entire month of June of July driving together, eating out, working out, taking hikes, visiting family and friends back in Cleveland where we're from, 24/7 for a whole month. 
As Kim says, it was a prelude to retirement and what she envisions retirement being about. And one of the things that I realized in this month with Kim as we traveled across the country, we drove over 3,500 miles in a rental car, is I was reminded again that though I love Kim and deeply am committed to her, that just saying I love her is not enough. I needed to tune in once again to how important the specifics are if we're going to spend that much time together. So what am I talking about? As we were driving across the country, I realized it was important once again that I realized these things. How often does she like to stop and use the restroom when we're driving? Uh, what does she value in choosing a restaurant? Because for me, Chick-fil-A and Chipotle would be just fine, not for her. What kind of hotel does she like? What radio stations does she like to listen to? How fast is too fast when driving on the freeway? What does she like to talk about? How many outlet centers can we blow by and not stop at? All of these things were very, very important issues that I had to relearn once again for us to spend this much time together. And that was just getting to Cleveland. When we got to Cleveland, there was a whole new thing that I needed to, to work on with her. How were we going to spend the whole days together in this month-long romantic honeymoon? Uh, we were visiting her parents and my parents. How long do you stay when you do that? All of these things became issues for us. And as you guys know, I love Kim deeply, so though I'm saying it kind of humorously, it was actually fun for me to once again learn how to be with her in this concentrated type of way. And I learned once again, too, that these are they're not small issues. They are actually pretty big issues, and they determine the quality of present relationship. If you ignore these issues, as some of you have found in relationship, then these small issues can become a big issue. And I learned once again that these are not small things. And you're saying, well, how does this relate to God? Well, obviously with God, we don't have to deal with things like restaurants that we choose or how often we stop when we're driving or how much time we spend with the in-laws. But there is a corollary here, and it's this. To the degree that you and I know and understand what God thinks about us and this world and how he is willing to function in our very lives, even in some of the specifics, is the, to the degree that we will rightly experience him. In other words, don't miss this. How we relate to God is just as important as what we believe about God, and the two are actually related. And I don't think most Christians understand that. Most Christians are content with just saying, I have a right belief system. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in sovereignty. I believe in the doctrines of grace. I believe in inerrancy. We have our statements of faith. But God and the Bible takes it a step further and actually says, okay, you got the right belief system, but are you using that belief system? And even more than that, to now relate to me as Heavenly Father or relate to Jesus as our brother and Savior or relate to the Spirit as our empowerer. In other words, belief is to lead to relationship, and belief determines relationship. It works humanly, and it works with God on a divine level. So let's take a deep dive into Job. Last week, we began a short two-week look at the story of Job, an Old Testament character who experienced the raw end of life, more so than anybody else you can imagine. He literally went from riches to rags and had to deal with where is God in the middle of all of his mess. 
And you might remember from last week, very quick review, that we noted there were three parts to the book of Job that will be important for you to, to know today. The first two chapters just give the story of Job, how he lost everything, his family, his money, his land, his animals, I mean everything, because of a heavenly wager between God and the evil one, Satan, in which Satan said, if Job loses all of his blessings, he won't be faithful to you. And God said, yes, he will. And so these, these, these calamities came upon Job. And then the next movement of the story are 30-some-odd chapters in which Job and his three so-called friends, because they didn't have a very good theology, were trying to figure out why all these things happened to Job. And, and where is God in the midst of, the, of all this? And what can Job do uh, in, now that everything's been taken away from him? And then the third movement of the story, and we're going to get to this one today, is when God shows up on the scene. And God shows up on the scene and basically dismisses Job's three friends, deals directly with Job, and starts to help him make sense of all that's been happening to him. We'll see more of that in a minute. And so we noted that there are three things that Job had in his spiritual arsenal. Three things that Job deeply believed about life and God that allowed him to weather the storms that he was experiencing. And the very first thing that Job believed that we looked at last week was that life is filled with circumstances that are not fair. So instead of saying life's not fair and this is no good, Job believed that life at times in a fallen world was going to be unfair, that bad things would even happen to God's people, bad things would happen to good people, and so he was ready in a very real sense for some difficult times to come because he wasn't duped into thinking that life should always be fair. And so we ended last week basically saying that you have a choice before you. You can demand and expect that life be fair and be miserable because it won't always be fair. Or you can accept the fact that life will not be fair all the time. And so again, how we understand God in this world, what kind of theology we bring into our circumstances, even the unfair ones, will determine our level of peace and contentment and even our experience of God. Now, we need to move on this morning to the second thing that we learned from Job. And I just got to warn you, if you thought the first one was hard last week, it gets harder. Because the second thing is actually, I find, even more difficult to accept, but it is so incredibly true, and it could be best summed up this way. This is point two on your outline, and it's this. God may bless us in life, but he does not owe us his blessing or any blessing. God may indeed and does bless us in life, but he doesn't owe us our blessings. And so here's the deal with Job. You would think that since God was the one who allowed the evil one to take all that he had from him, that once this heavenly wager was over, that God would restore all of Job's blessings because that would be only fair. You would think that that's the way that this would work. And though indeed that is what happens at the end of the story, you can read it on your own later, it's interesting that one of the things that Job makes, makes clear very early on in the book is that given the loss of all of his blessings, God does not owe him his blessings back. He does not owe him the blessings that he has lost. And so look with me at how Job says this after the very first wave of loss has come upon him after he'd lost his family, his land, and money in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This is very instructive. Look up here on the screen. 
It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And folks, i got to tell you, I have read these words so many times over the years, and every time I read them, I go, whoa. I mean, don't miss what Job is affirming here. Don't miss his theology that is guiding right now in front of us how he relates to God. You see, he believed that God is the giver of all blessings. And so surely then, conversely, God can be the taker away of blessings that God is the one who bestows any and all blessings that we have, and so obviously God can be the one to take them away. In a very real sense, Job is affirming here that God really doesn't owe us anything and that all we get in life is a gift anyways. So even in the midst of absolute pain and disillusionment, Job is seeing all of life as a gift and where it is coming from. He's realizing that God does indeed bless us in life, and that's a good thing. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and the Lord gave. But then don't miss that he takes us even further and says that God doesn't owe us any blessings. Naked I'm going to go to the grave, and the Lord is taken away. There's a balance here that Job is affirming that I would submit to you is a key part of his mental, emotional, spiritual, and relational health, a key part of his worldview that allowed him to weather even the darkest, most tumultuous times of life. That indeed God will bless us, but there's a fine line. He doesn't owe us these blessings. So when they're not there, we're not going to be copying a bad attitude with God. And what you and I need to realize right at this point in our discussion is that this truth today, now, now you need to see this, is an assault on the mindset that so many of us have today, even many Christians who eventually walk around with this mindset. Tell me if this isn't true. They walk out with a mindset that say, I'm a good person. I'm a good guy. I try really hard. I've earned a lot that I have. I'm an American. And so I deserve what I get right now, and because of it, I deserve a pretty good future as well. I mean, I'm telling you, that is the way the average American, or at least the very least the average person in the Western part of the world, sees life. We see ourselves as entitled to a good standard of living, entitled to good things in life, and if and when they don't come, we cry foul because an entitlement has not come our way. And isn't it interesting that even when I use that word entitlement, that is a word that our government here in America uses all the time. And though I'm not here today to make a judgment upon political entitlements, I'm really not. You guys know me better than that. One of the things that I want us to note right now is that because you and I do live within a political cultural climate that is all about entitlements, I would submit to you that this sets us up to drag that entitlement mentality into our relationship with God and even others around us, and this sets us up for profound disappointments. I, I want to go with that a little bit further. I, a few months ago, I read an article that came out last December 2012 uh, called The Shocking Truth on Entitlements. It appeared in U.S. News and World Report, and it was actually a book review uh, done by a gal here of a book by the economist Nicholas Eberstadt and the book was called the, A Nation of Takers, America's Entitlement Epidemic. 
And it was a very brutal analysis of the entitlement culture, entitlement culture that we have in our country today that noted a few facts. It first noted that, and these are indisputable, that entitlement transfer payments to individuals, whether it be for retirement or Medicare, Medicaid, health care, age, unemployment, entitlement spending in the year 2010 totaled $2.2 trillion in America. Now, now some of you are going, oh, 2.2, that's kind of a quaint number. It's a large number. $2.2 trillion is an incredibly large number. What's even more staggering about that number is that since 1960, the amount of money that we are giving to entitlement spending in America from government to individuals has grown a hundredfold. In 1960, the percentage of entitlement money that the government spent was about one-third of government spending. Now it's over two-thirds of government spending. Which is why, by the way, when people try to balance the budget or cut back, it's very hard to do so because you're now starting to infringe upon and trample on people's entitlements. Probably most staggering in this article is that she pointed out that as a result of all of this entitlement spending, half of all American households currently receive transfer payments in some form from the government. In other words, half of us get some type of check from the government on a regular basis, and 45% staggering of all American children receive some sort of aid. So again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but we have backed ourselves into a political climate in America where we're all now kind of entitled to certain things just by being an American, just by being born in the country that we're in. And again, I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, those darn Democrats. Let me read for you something that appeared at the end of this article, and and, and I'm going to read for you this statement verbatim, and, and I didn't believe it. So I, I called Dr. Barry Asmus, who's a leading economist in the nation here and in our church, and I got through to Barry on Friday, and I read him the statement. I said, could this be true? Is this true? And he said, sadly, it is. He said, it's a verifiable fact. Let me read this for you. She says, Eberstadt points out that entitlement spending tended to be an average of 8% higher under Republican presidents than Democratic ones and singles out the Nixon, Ford, and George W. Bush administrations as especially lavish in their entitlement spending. Then she balances it out. She says not only has the Obama administration continued the unrestrained spending, it has succeeded in celebrating government aid as a part of the American dream. She says public assistance is now seen as a basic civil right of all Americans thanks to both parties. And again, I'm not here to vie for whether this is right or wrong. I'm certainly not here, obviously, to step on either party. This is reality. You and I live like fish in dirty water. We're in a culture in which this idea of entitlement is thrown upon us from every angle. And again, some of you might argue that this is a good thing politically. That's fine. But I'm a theologian. I'm a pastor. And this I do know. When you and I drag this entitlement mentality, and we do all the time, into our relationship with God and into the way that we relate to others, it sets us up for profound disappointment. Because when you demand that others owe you things and that you're entitled to certain things from God and from those around you, just like the government provides for you, it's going to lead to profound disappointment and even disillusionment in life. 
I've been saying this for years, that, that, that part of how you and I function with God on this level matters greatly. And I made a very bold statement today that, that, that God indeed will give us blessings, but he doesn't owe us blessings. Let, let me talk a little bit further about that so that there's no misunderstanding. Because many of you are not shy to email me. I get it. And I just don't want there to be misunderstanding on, on what I'm trying to communicate here today. So, so let me give you a quick theology lesson here on what the Bible says about blessings. Let's start in the easy part. God in the Bible has declared that he loves you that he's placed you on planet earth here, he cares for you, and that he desires to bless you and many times will. And he has further said that if you are blessed, you now are to be used by him to be a blessing to other people. So look at Matthew 5:45. It says, for he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God wants to bless us. At another point, Jesus said in Matthew 7:10, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So let's cement this forever. God desires to bless us, and as a result of that, in many ways, he does bless us. And then God further says, for those of you who have been blessed, and I think that this is relevant for Scottsdale Bible Church, for those of you who have been blessed, we're now to be a blessing to each other as well as to those in need in our culture. So think of all the one another's that you know from the Bible. Serve one another, care for one another, bear each other's burdens, cry with those who cry, have mercy and compassion on one another, share our faith, teach people, counsel them, care for poor and widows, love our enemies, love our spouses. And there's a distinction between the two. We're to love all people around us. In short, we're to be a blessing to other people as an extension of God's blessings to us. I think we all get that. But here's what most people miss. If you look closely, nowhere in the Bible does it say that in the midst of these blessings that are going on all around from God and others, that we should then have the mindset that God and others owe us these things. In other words, there's a distinction between God's desire to bless us and his call for us to bless others and then the mindset as a receiver that we should expect and demand these things from God and others. Do you see that? It's subtle, but it's a very, very clear distinction in the Bible. And I would submit to you that it's an important distinction because many of us walk around day in and day out with the mindset that God and others owe us that the blessings we have have been well-earned and well-founded, and we better get them in the future. And I know you think that way because when they don't come, you come into my office and you cry bloody murder and say, where's God? And, da, 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 and I get it, and you say all these things. And I go, well, where'd you get the theology in the first place that you were owed? Well, who told you that outside of this culture that we live in? Well, where did you get this idea that others and God owe you and that you somehow are promised the good life. You see, it's one thing to desire and to receive and be grateful for blessings when they come, but please see, folks, it's a whole other thing to expect, demand, and then expect some more that God and others owe us. One mindset leads to grace and gratefulness. The other mindset leads to disappointment, resentment, and eventual disillusionment. And mark my words, Job knew this. This is core to Job's theology. 
We don't have time to go into it, but his friends didn't know this. His friends functioned with pure cause and effect. They said, you get what you deserve. You do good in life, you get good. You do bad in life, you get bad. And for like 30-some-odd chapters, they're trying to convince Job that, that all these things have happened to you because you just haven't quite been good enough. And you haven't done the right things in life. You have friends like that that say that to you too. And the reality is, is that it's comical because in the book of Job, the whole book starts out by saying these things happen to Job for no reason because he was the most righteous man living on earth at that time. So it could be like telling Billy Graham or Mother Teresa that the bad things have happened and have happened because they're just really not bad people deep down. You wouldn't dare do that. At least you wouldn't. The reality is, is that Job is the quintessential godly person in which bad things happen to him. And because he believed that life wasn't going to be fair and because he believed that blessings would be given and blessings would be taken away and that I bless the name of the Lord no matter what, that allowed him to weather the storms of life. So once again, you and I have a fork in the road in front of us. If this is where you are right now and you're facing that dilemma that Job is in, you can do one of two things. You can either demand that God and life bless you more and more and be very disappointed and miserable when they don't come, or you can accept the fact that you are owed nothing and receive all that you do have with a heart of gratitude. And in the end, those two things produce very different outcomes in our very souls. You know, I, I said to you guys last week, and I meant it, that, that one of the reasons I keep coming back to this theme in life that I do about blessings and fairness and all this is because I've had a very tumultuous journey in this area. I, these truths have been hard won in my life. They haven't come easy. I still haven't arrived, and I've had a love-hate relationship with what I'm talking to you about last week and this week. And as I gave some thought to it this week, I thought, you know, I'm very thankful in this area to my dad uh, for hammering these things home to me ever since I was a little guy. Uh, my dad, as I mentioned to you all before, grew up during the Depression era. His dad died when he was seven. They didn't have two nickels to rub together. So my dad has a worldview that basically life is not going to be fair and that at the end of the day, if you demand and expect that others owe you, it's going to lead to a lot of disappointment in life. And though my dad's not an evangelical Christian, he raised my brother and I this way. And so as a result of that, I've walked into my relationship with God with some similar mindsets. And I'm telling you, it has served me well. I've asked my dad if I could share these stories, and he said, oh, absolutely. But I can remember when I first went off to college uh, my dad was trying to teach me this lesson. And when I went off to Hillsdale College in 1982, uh, my dad was footing the bill for my college experience. I mean, everything. He was going to pay for the tuition, the room and board, and getting there and back and all that. And I felt, well, I was totally ungrateful at that time, like most college kids are. I didn't even think about the fact that he was paying for it, but he was. And to add insult to injury, I, my sister, who's three years older than me, was in her senior year of college, and I don't know how I found this out, but I knew that she was getting $100 a month allowance while she was at college, 100 bucks a month, way back in the late 70s, early 80s. And so as I was getting set to go to Hillsdale, I said to my dad, I'll never forget this conversation, I walked into his home office, he was a lawyer, and I said, hey, dad, how much allowance do I get when I'm at Hillsdale? And you guys can see this train coming a mile away. He looked at me, and he said, nothing. And I looked at him, and I said, that's not fair. He shook his head. And I'll never forget what he said to me, because my mom was right there. He said, look, Jamie, here's the deal. Your sister was raised by your mother, and she has no idea how to handle money. And I'm sitting there going, no offense, Mom, you know. 
And then he says, you and your brother were raised by me, and you know the value of a dollar, and you should be thankful I'm paying for college, and anything else you want, you need to earn it. You know, I did first thing I did when I got to Hillsdale College, I got a job in the cafeteria serving hot dogs and working at the salad bar. And I'm watching all these, you know, rich kids, because Hillsdale's kind of a, a small little boutique liberal arts school. I'm watching these rich kids never having to work, and I'm thinking, my dad's a lawyer. He could be giving me a hundred bucks a month, and here I am working in the cafeteria. And for four years, I cursed him working in that cafeteria, you know, just saying, why do I have to do this? And, and yet later on in life, I mean, very quickly, I realized the value of an experience like that. And I realized, I have so many more stories I could tell you, that my dad was trying to just say, he wasn't trying to be cheap. I mean, my dad's a generous man. He was just trying to say, it's not good if all you ever do is think you're owed things. And you know, when, I, when I've experienced difficult, dark times in my walk with God, and I have, and you've heard me talk about them, and I'm sure I will in the future, I, I really do many times have the mindset of Job, in which I go, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. The only thing I am owed this side of heaven, outside of the grace of God, is an eternity apart from God. That's what the Bible affirms. And so my salvation, the fact that he's given me Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and any involvement or blessing that God gives me, it's a gift of grace, and I'm not owed it. He's given it to me, and I'm grateful. And so life is filled with circumstances that are not fair. God is going to bless you folks, but he doesn't owe you his blessing. Two truths that Job deeply believed that allowed him to handle the difficult times of life with grace and truth and even make sense of how he was going to get through some of these times and find God in the midst of it. And there is one further thing that Job realized and believed in all the difficult experiences he went through, and it's our third and final point in our overview. And believe it or not, it's the most important, and it's the one that pulls all of this together, and here it is, and that is that you must believe that whether life is fair or not, whether we get blessed or not, God is always good. I, some of you don't get this right now. I can tell by the look on your face, but, but bear with me on this. Whether or not life is fair, whether or not we get blessed, God is always good. Now, why is this important? One of the most profound things, I think, of the story of Job, and you have to look close to see this, is that in all three phases of the story, from the initial story to the extended dialogue to when God shows up on the scene, Job trusts in the goodness of God every step of the way and thus stays in the ring with God. In other words, through all of his pain and suffering that he went through, and not ever even realizing why all this was happening to him, he never wavered on whether God was good and sovereign in his life. And don't get me wrong, Job did complain, and he did question why. And as we're going to see in a second here, he did bring his frustration to God. But when you look close, he never ever questioned whether God was good or not. He never doubted whether God was good or not. He comes very close, but the text seems to suggest, it actually says, that he didn't. I want to show you what I mean. I want to take you on a very brief journey through some of Job's comments that he makes in the middle of this arduous ordeal that he went through. First, look at a comment that Job makes right when everything has been taken away from him. Look at Job 1.22 and then 2 verse 10. It says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong, 
And then when his wife says, hey, just curse God and die, it says in chapter 2, verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so latch on to that, folks. He lost all that he had, and yet he's still saying that God is good. Now, we're going to put that together here in a minute. Notice then Job enters into the dialoguing and complaining stage of the book. And even as he's desperately trying to make sense of why and how all this calamity has come upon him, look at some of the statements he makes. Look at Job 13, verse 15. Job says, though he, God, slay me, yet I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. You got to love the balance there. Do you pick up on it? Though he slay me, because he's got the power to do all, yet I'm going to hope in him because he's good. But you better believe I'm going to come to him and try to figure out why and what is going on in the midst of all of this pain. And then in 19 verses 25 and 26, a very famous phrase that's repeated often, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Do, do, do you see what Job's doing there? He's saying he's my redeemer. He is good and he is sovereign. He will stand at last upon the earth. And even when I die, because if all of this kills me, I'm going to see him because he's good. So even in questioning and wondering why all of this has happened, he remains steadfast in God's goodness. But Job does cop a bad attitude in all of this. He he does come close to even questioning God. And so in the third movement, when God finally shows up on the scene, it's interesting what happens in the last five chapters of Job. I mean, God shows up on the scene, and he finally answers Job. And I don't know if you ever read it this way, but he answers Job out of the whirlwind. That's an interesting phrase. So some of you wonder, does God ever speak to you in the midst of your most dark, windy, difficult times in life? Yes, God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And I don't mean to be crass about it, but when you read the chapters, at least for me, they read almost Robert De Niro-like in the way God approaches Job. I mean, basically, God looks at Job and says, you talking to me? You talking to me? And then he asks four long chapters of questions of Job, like in staccato format. He says, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, Job, if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow and seen the storehouses of the hail? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may rain down? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? And on and on and on, he's asking Job all these questions. And you can almost hear Job going, ah, 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 ah. And finally, after two chapters, Job gets a word in. And he says this, and I'm reading it directly. He says, I am of small account. What can I say to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. But God's not done. This is humorous. God says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then two more chapters of all these questions to Job. And it's just like, what is God doing here? Basically, what God is doing is giving Job a glimpse of his sovereignty and his goodness. He's letting Job see 
that Job, you've been affirming this, but now I'm going to let you experience it. I am good, and I am powerful, and I love you, and I'm here right now. Got anything more you want to say? And look at how Job sums it up. Look at Job chapter 42, verses 3 and 5. Very famous words that have been immortalized over the years. It says this, Job is speaking. He says, you, God, have asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? The implication being me. He says, therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. More tender words you will never find in Scripture. He's basically saying, God, I now see you are good, you are powerful, and I trust you. And i got to believe Job is saying, and I will never even come close to doubting that again, that even in the midst of all of life's difficulties, I know that you are good. And it's interesting, right at this point, thus ends Job's lessons, and it is here and only here that his fortunes are restored but it's after he has recognized and honored in an unwavering way the goodness of God in this life despite his circumstances. Now, why is this important? I've thought about this a lot over the years. Folks, this is how it works. When you and I trust in the goodness of God, this allows us, even in the midst of our darkest times, to come to him with our hurt, our frustration, our pain, even our complaint. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But it's because you believe he's good. And it's because you don't doubt that that allows you to come to him. Do you see that? Because think about the opposite. It's when we say or insinuate that he's not good. It's when we say in the midst of our pain, well, God, where are you? Where are you? And why are you allowing this to happen to me? What's going on right then with you and God? You're not insinuating he's good, and there's a distance between him and you there. That's not a faith mindset. It's a doubt mindset. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting we don't bring our complaint to God. He can take it. We do. But it's because you believe he is good. It's because you believe he is powerful that he even allows you to come to him. And what you need to know, and I don't mean to scare some of you in this, I really don't, but the Scriptures elevate this faith in the goodness of God so high that it's actually more important than just about anything else. I mean, today I hear Christians talk all the time today, we think that materialism, lying, lust, gossip, and all these are, are, are the big bad sins that we can do, and those are all bad things to do. But would, you, would surprise you to know that the Scriptures actually say that doubting the goodness of God is a greater sin than all of that? It's true, because doubting the goodness of God is not trusting in him. It's not faith in him. It's pride. It's the root of all sin. And God is most concerned that in your deepest time of need that you trust him, that he is good and that he is there for you. So in the end, we are once again left with two critical choices but when we are in trouble. We can respond to suffering and hardship by doubting the goodness of God, or we can respond to suffering and hardship by trusting in the goodness of God. And I would submit to you that those are two very different roads, and they, as going back to what we talked about at the beginning, they will be absolutely determinative on the kind of experience that you have with God. One of the uh, privileges I get as being a pastor of a church is kind of figuratively as I'm standing more higher here on a stage and 
cactus and venue, you know, I'm a little bit higher here on the stage, is that figuratively speaking, I, I get a, a kind of a bird's eye view of the whole church, even throughout the week. I, I get to look at the church throughout the week, and, and I get to see so many what I would call victory laps, so many victorious stories of people who go through such difficult times and continue to trust in the goodness of God. And my very first senior pastor back in London, Ontario, it was a very interesting church. It was a very old Baptist church, and, and many of these people had been there for two or three, even four generations, and many of them had come off the boat from Western Europe because Canada had a big influx of immigrants after World War II, and this became their church. And they all knew each other, and they had journeyed together for years. And like many churches, it was an aging church, and yet that didn't bother me because what I loved more than anything about Wortley Baptist Church when I was pastoring there is seeing all the victory laps in the midst of life's most difficult times. I can remember Irene and Dennis. Dennis had a debilitating chronic illness that left him just almost immobile for 10, 15 years on, on end, totally ruined their retirement or what they thought retirement would be like, and eventually Dennis passed away, and I presided over his funeral. I'll never forget Irene coming to me in that rich Irish accent that she had that I can't imitate, and through the tears she looked at me and she said, God is so good. It almost didn't fit. And the midst of grieving her husband's loss, God is so good. I remember Lil, one of our senior saints, a kind of heavyset woman, and Lil had psoriasis like I'd never seen all over her arms. I mean, I complain when I get a canker sore, you know, and Lil had psoriasis like everywhere. And I remember just going like this when I'd see her because I'd think it's hot, it's humid, and I'm uncomfortable, and how do, you, how do you even deal with that? And yet this woman had a contagious joy from deep within in her walk with the Lord in which she communicated the goodness of God. And I know she was uncomfortable all the time. She communicated the goodness of God everywhere that she went. How do people do that? We had another guy in our church who, whose wife had Alzheimer's, and for 10 years she didn't even know who her husband was. And eventually they put her in a home. She couldn't bathe herself, clean herself. And Jack went every day to see Jenny, every day. And, and he'd love on his wife. And then he'd go to Bible study, and he'd say, God is so good. See, see folks, our world knows nothing of this. Our world, when it goes through difficult times, turns to Oprah. When it gets to go through difficult times, we go to the New York Times bestseller list. We go to a therapist's couch. I'm not saying anything's are necessarily bad things to go to. It's just that when Christians go through the most difficult times in our life, the first thing that we do is call God good and run to him. Do you see that? Sometimes it misses people, but the vision statement of our church, the dream that we have at Scottsdale Bible is very rich to me. The vision statement of our church reads like this. We want to be a community of Christ followers who are known, marked by an unwavering faith in Jesus and an unconditional love for each other. You need to know, there's only two dreams I have for all of you, cactus and venue, only two dreams I dream about, and that is that no matter what life would throw you, you would trust in God with everything in you in his unwavering goodness, and that you would love each other in a sacrificial, head-turning kind of way. I'm telling you, to the, to the degree that that happens, as the Duck Dynasty guy would say, I'm a happy, happy, happy man. <laughs> I really am. I, I mean, that is what floats my boat as a pastor, to see all of you trust God and to see all of you love one another. And so how do you do that? Here's how you do it. Last challenge, and with this we're done. Job begins like this. It's a challenging verse. It says in Job 1.8, and then repeated in Job 2.3, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
No more dangerous words have ever been uttered in Scripture than that, than God saying to Satan, have you considered my servant? Now let's do this. Let's take Job's name out of it, and I want you to put your name into it. What would happen in heaven if that happened? Have you considered my servant Bill? Have you considered my servant Ann? Have you considered my servant Mike? Have you considered my servant Giovanna? Put your name into this. Have you considered your name? And here's a question I want you to leave with today. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? That if that heavenly wager were to happen, and I hope it's not for you, but if it was, are you prepared? And some of you are saying right now, well, how do you prepare for that? That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. If you really believe that life should be fair, let me tell you something right now. You're not prepared for that kind of wager. If you really believe that you are owed blessings in life, let me give you a hint. You're not prepared for that kind of wager. If you really believe that God is not good in certain circumstances in life, you'll never make it through that. But conversely, if you don't expect life to be fair all the time, if you see your blessings as a gift from God with great gratitude, but he might also choose not to bless you, and if you see him as good and in through everything, then as painful as it might be, if God were ever to say to Satan, if you considered my servant, trust me, you'll get through it. You will, because he is good, and he loves you. And as Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the words of Scripture that help us, Lord, make sense even in the most difficult times of our lives. And Lord, I'm under no illusion at all that there are some here today in a cactus and venue that are going through difficult times and come in here bruised and beat up. And Lord, I pray that the words today and the story of Job might help them, Lord, dig deep, dig their heels in, and trust you in the midst even of the most difficult times in life. And Lord, as the psalmist says, I pray for them as well, that though there might be weeping in the night, that there might be joy in the morning. And that, Lord, you remind them that as for Job and as for many men and women in the Bible, these two things, shall, these things also will pass. And that, Lord, there really is joy in the morning as we hang in there with you. So, God, I pray that you would bolster our faith, increase our love, and that, Lord, as you do that, that you'd use us to be salt and light to those around us. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.